The Kindness Podcast is made possible by Cornwell Properties in Athens, Ohio. Cornwell Properties offers Ohio University students the best locations to live in Athens. All of their apartments are either on Court Street or within one block. Cornwell Properties. Location matters. Visit their website, cornwellpropertiesathens.com, for more information. Welcome to the Kindness Podcast. I'm Nicole Phillips. After joining the Army at 18 years old, Brian Fleming was blown up by a suicide bomber in Afghanistan. Now, as an author, speaker, and resilience trainer, he has enjoyed the incredible honor of speaking to nearly half a million people over the past decade. His message? How to stand firm when everything around you is blowing up. Brian talks with me about the role kindness plays in resiliency. Brian, I felt so grateful to meet you at the conference we both attended, but what stuck with me was your willingness to share the secrets of your business of resiliency. We were there to learn, you know, from other people, but you were so willing to teach me at the same time, which showed me great kindness. And um, before we get into everything else, would you share your story with our listeners so that they can have a piece of that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, just to give you the short version, because uh, I could go all day, uh, <laughs> I served with the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division uh, in Afghanistan as a team leader in an infantry platoon. And uh, so we basically we were the guys on the ground um, enforcing um, <laughs> our policies. And uh, while I was there, I was inside of two vehicles that were blown up and totally destroyed while we were inside of them. Uh, the first was about a month after we arrived, and we ran over a bomb on the road and blew up the vehicle, set it on fire. Um, I had to drag one of my guys out, uh, who was half conscious from the blast. It actually went off underneath his seat. And, uh, so fortunately, uh, the two guys who were injured, they both returned to duty, uh, within the month. So very grateful for that. I walked away completely physically unharmed from that explosion. Uh, I call that a genuine miracle. Um, but then any of us lived. And then a few months later, uh, a suicide bomber decided to explode three feet away from me in Kandahar while I was in my vehicle. I was sitting in my vehicle, and he got his minivan right up next to my door. I mean, I literally could have reached my hand out and t- probably touched his vehicle. And as he got up next to us, he just let it rip and uh, blew himself and his van into about 10,000 pieces uh, right there in the street. I woke up in a ditch on the side of the road. I was burned in bloody second-degree burns on my face and neck, third degree on both hands. Uh, spent 14 months of extremely uh, painful, excruciating burn treatment and reconstructive surgery at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. And, um, you know, the thing, the thing about it was that I met a guy who was a Vietnam vet who had been injured and he'd been speaking and writing books for about 30 years. And he basically said, Hey, Brian, I'll, uh, I'll show you how to do something with all this if you're willing. And mm-hmm. my family tree changed in that moment when I, when I said yes to that opportunity. What do you mean by that? Your family tree changed? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I come from nothing. I come from a very broken home. I guess who doesn't nowadays? Uh, but a vi- very, uh, without going into detail, my parents had an extremely violent divorce. I grew up with nothing. You know, when my parents divorced, I, you know, my mother moved to Florida. I went to live with my dad. He went to jail. So I had nobody. I was 12. Oh, man. And we didn't come for money, opportunity, nothing. And this man showed me how to use my story in a way that provides value to the world. And, uh, you know, the first, that was first and foremost, I was seeing other people's lives made better and they were given hope because uh, not because I had any advice. I didn't, but 
it was because they saw what I had survived and it gave them hope that they can win their own battles that they're going through. And, uh, that led to uh, a speaking and writing business. I've written a few books and I, I speak and, uh, yeah, it led me down a path I never anticipated. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to think that, wow, the, the kindness of that man to, to show you that, but also your kindness in being vulnerable with the world, because if you're willing to, to show your own vulnerability, other people can too. Right. You know, I, that's a great point because there's, there are so many people, uh, public figures or whoever, uh, whoever it is, you'll see them, whether it's on a stage or on TV, people think they have to act like they have it all together. But what they fail to realize is that until you're very genuine and vulnerable with people, you're not connecting with them. And nowadays more than ever, especially like, let's say with the millennial generation, people see right through that and they don't trust you and you'll never know it likely. Mm-hmm. but they won't do business with you. They won't listen to you. They won't follow what you do because I always say that leaders go first. And it's interesting because when, I, when I'm when i willing to share some pain from my life that I've learned a lesson through, when I go first, people who will never talk about their experiences are willing to talk about their experiences, which is healing. Do you find that especially in the military communities in which you speak, that they, they are you know, maybe primarily men, but some women who just feel like, nope, I've got to be strong? Yeah, I find it everywhere, Hmm. but definitely in the military community, because you're bred from day one in basic training or boot camp that you fight onto the objective and not accomplish the mission, you know, though you be the lone survivor at all costs, no matter what. Um, And so there's a very strong self-reliant mindset, which is a good and necessary thing. However, when you get out of the military, everybody tells you that, you know, vulnerability is strength and courageous. And and you go, well, that's not what I was taught since day one, nor is that reinforced in combat. And so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a shift in thinking, but really for me, I, I had a, a higher purpose for sharing my story. It wasn't about me talking about my story or projecting it on you merely it was it was sharing my story for a higher purpose that that transcends me. Mm-hmm. So you're a Department of Defense resilience trainer for the U.S. military, um, mm-hmm. and you go on bases and outposts across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are some of the keys of of resiliency that you share with them that that the general public could take? There are three things that I found the world's most resilient people all have in common, and. There are a lot more things than this, but these are three that that tend to be present at some point or another in people's lives when everything completely falls apart and they experience total life devastation, but they make it back. And the first thing is that they believe that their experience is for a reason, that there's meaning in their suffering, and that uh, even if they don't know what that meaning is, that they believe it's there. I remember lying in the hospital bed after they scraped my skin off with the razor blades while I was still awake and conscious, they had to get all the burned, dirty skin off and they keep you awake through it. And asking the question of why, like, why am I experiencing this? And I don't have time to go into details, but what I was doing was searching for meaning. I was open to seeing that there might be a higher meaning to this that I'm not seeing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, coincidentally or not coincidentally, five months later, I met a man named Dave Reaver who became my mentor. And, you know, that guy would have come into my life either way. 
I would have probably been in some of the same spots around the medical center, but I don't know if I would have uh, realized or recognized the opportunity that was in front of me. So the first thing was uh, having, they have a sense of meaning in their suffering or they're searching for it and they believe that they'll find it. And the second thing is that they have good mentors in their lives. They have a personal chain of command. In the military, we have a chain of command. You have superiors, you have people beside you of equal rank, and you have those under you who you're tasked with leading and developing. And in our personal lives, if you're struggling, you need to find somebody who's been where you've been, yet they've made it. Go talk to that person. They can help show you a way out from personal successful experience. That's what uh, my mentor Dave did for me. So there's meaning and there's mentoring and then there's the mission piece. And again, the mission piece is really just proof of the meaning. It's something, it's what you're actively doing. It's the action piece. It's, it's the thing that you're seeking to accomplish that transcends you or your own personal gain or recognition. It's the higher purpose you're living for. You know, if you look at even biblical accounts, You'll see there, you know, Jesus and his disciples, great example. Uh, these people weren't too sure before, so they would deny their faith. But then they, they, they came to a point where they believed in this higher mission so much that they died brutal deaths uh, for what they believed. There was something higher they were, they were living for every day. And when, when you have somebody who has suffered greatly, yet they've discovered meaning or they're searching for that meaning— they have good mentors, a good chain of command in their life, and they're living for the accomplishment of a cause that's higher than themselves. Those aren't the people who kill themselves. Those are the people who make it. Mm, wow. And I could see how as, you know, I, I've got no affiliation with the military other than just uh, being very grateful to them. But I can see in my life, and I'm sure the listeners can see in their life, yeah, you know what? I've been through suffering at one point. Yes. You know what? Somebody came alongside of me and showed me how to make something out of this. And then, you know, that action piece of helping another person and showing another person kindness or, um, you know, doing whatever it is that you're called to do out of that suffering. That's that's remarkable. Well, and, and you don't always know what that mission is. It, this thing develops. You see, these three things I just shared, they were present in my life in the early years after my injury. I just didn't know they were. <laughs> I had to I had to look back seven, eight, ten years backwards down the road to go, hey, these things were actually what made the difference. Why did I make it and others didn't? You know, and why did I move forward and others didn't? And these are just three major things that I saw were there not only in my life, but in a lot of the lives of uh, my friends who were extreme tragedy survivors of in many ways. So what year did the did the bomb go off next to you, the suicide bomber? That was July 24th of 2006. 2006. Okay, so I was just wondering how much of a time span we had in there. So you had 14 months of active recovery in this terrible, terrible recovery. Uh, by the way, why, why would they have to keep you awake while they're scraping off the burnt skin? You know, that, that's the question everybody asks, and here's the answer. They could sedate you, but they often have to do it multiple times. And their fear is that if they sedate you multiple times uh, too closely, um, you know, within a few hours of each other or day after day, that you'll slip into a coma and not wake up. Oh. And on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, they have to do it fast because you can literally go into shock from the pain. And so... Uh, my, my, it's, it's a process called debris. Any extreme burn survivor can tell you about it. Um, 
but mine took about 30 minutes, which seemed like an eternity uh, to me. But that that was as quick as they could go. And is this multiple people all working on you at the same time then? Yeah, there were like three or four nurses. And I just, yeah, they lay, rolled me into the shower room, sprayed me off. And the, uh, the head nurse looked at me and said, uh, Sergeant Fleming, we're going to do this as quickly as possible so it can be as painless as possible. And I had no idea what he was about to do either, mm-hmm. which I'm kind of glad I didn't. Mm-hmm. So um, you had 14 months of active recovery, like all of this. But now I would imagine that that there's a baseline of recovery that kind of happens for years. Would you agree with that, that it took you years to get to the point where you were ready to share? Well, the first time I shared was when my when my mentor pulled me up on stage in front of 3,000 people about seven months after my injury. Okay. And so it was kind of like, like getting a baseball in the face, you know, uh, from five feet away. It's like, think fast. Here you go. <laughs> but, you know, I met a young lady there uh, after I got off stage after the two minutes of saying, hey, I got blown up. I guess I'm still here for a reason. Get motivated or something. Uh, I got off stage and this young lady came up to me. She was probably 23 or so at the time. And she said, you know, Brian, I've been I've been raped and abused and molested growing up. My boyfriend was awful. He hurt me, too. He just broke up with me and I tried to kill myself. And I'm thinking to myself, why in the world is this stranger telling me this? these intimate details. But then she ended what she said by saying this. She tagged this on the end. She said, uh, but you know, Brian, uh, if, if you can get through all this, I think I can get through what I'm going through. <sighs> and, you know, when, when you just, when you're in the worst pain and you just experience the worst trauma you've ever been through and you realize this young lady's not going to go home and drink a bottle of pills or put a gun in her mouth and pull the trigger, that gives a great sense of meaning to, uh, the experiences and the pain we that we go through. Yeah, and and it must have just hooked you in that moment and said, "I have got to keep speaking." Exactly, it, it hooked me like like heroin. I've never been on heroin, but I hear it's addictive. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's, here it's, it's no good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is helping and sharing and being kind and and speaking and writing and what you've got. It, absolutely, it's addictive because you know you're changing lives and making a difference. I get high off of seeing other people feel hopeful about their dire situations. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's kindness. Like I tell people, if you knew what it felt like to really be out of your comfort zone kind and get that great feeling, you'd want to do it. You know, you'd be hooked. Oh, yeah. We'll get back to our conversation with Brian in a moment. But first, today's Kindness Call, sponsored by Cornwell Properties, where location matters. Hi, Nicole. This is Dr. Neil Nibo in San Diego. Our community was serving a thousand Marines holiday dinner uh, at Camp Pendleton in California. And there were a thousand of them in line with their families and their little kids. And sometimes they were two and three year olds and the children didn't know what they were doing there. They were in this long line. They were scared. They were nervous. And a friend of mine named Doug Green was greeting every Marine, every spouse, every child as they were getting ready to walk in. And he would get down on his hands and knees and look at one of the little kids who really couldn't even make eye contact. They were so nervous. And he'd say, do you like pie? And they would nod. And then he'd say, what's your favorite? And they would say pumpkin or cherry or apple. And he'd say, do you like whipped cream on it? And then they would nod and smile. And he'd say, we have your favorite pie inside. 
and then they would light up and they would call up to their mom and say, mom, they have my pie inside. And now they were friends and it wasn't a thousand person line. It was just their family and their new friend, Doug. So that was a really fun time. Have a happy new year. Did you know you can be on the kindness podcast? Call the kindness hotline with your story. You can leave us a voicemail at the number in the description of this podcast. Now back to the show. This is a very personal question, but what does ongoing recovery mean for you? Do you have PTSD? I would imagine like you, you, it's got to be hard to be in a car or hear a loud noise or what does that look like for you? Well, I, I've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress as well as a, a mild traumatic brain injury from multiple blast injuries, uh, which often gives me headaches every day. Uh, my short-term memory isn't the best, unfortunately. But, you know, considering everything that happened, I'm, I'm a fully functional person who can, you know, live independently and you know, travel and around the world and speak, and I write books. Um, most people who went through what I did, uh, they either didn't come out of it alive or they did not come out of it physically uh, as well as I did. And that that I had no control over that. But, you know, every day is a battle. My, you know, I do live in a new, in a new normal. It, it is different than it used to be. My photographic memory that I had my whole life up until 21 years old, uh, that's gone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to adapt. I have to adapt to the world around me to make things work for me. I don't expect the world to change so that I can be accommodated. If I can't remember something or, you know, going through airports, if I have um, headaches from sitting too long, I, I mean, I've, I've got to carry, you know, some extra maybe pills of Excedrin with me that help with my headaches. You know, Excedrin for some reason works and nothing else does. Um, you know, if, if I'm sitting in traffic, I hate being locked in like in, in a gridlock and feeling trapped. And so it's up to me to turn on my podcast and listen to it while I'm sitting in the car in the middle of a, a, of noisy rush hour traffic, because that allows me to partially take my mind somewhere else. That's more peaceful. Uh, that helps me calm down rather than seeing the other cars around me as obstacles to be overcome <laughs> because mm-hmm. that's not going to be productive. Mm-hmm. Right. So you just have to adapt. Your wife, Jamie, uh, you guys have been married for more than 10 years. Was she around when you went through all of this? Yes. Uh, Jamie and I got married three months before I left for Afghanistan. So we got married in December of 05. I deployed in March three months later. Wow. Wow. So what sort of kindness have the two of you, um, you know, had to to work through here? I would imagine that she, you know, first dealt with just a husband being gone, but then seeing you come back and be perhaps, you know, different in some ways than you were. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a uh, constant adaptation. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're married to somebody or you're around them for so long, you you tend to know their habits and now, this is for anybody, whether you're a trauma survivor or not. You just get to know what bothers people, and and you also get to know what helps people and how they best uh, receive communication. And uh, you know, I've learned with her, it's not just what I say, but how I say it. And so, mm. you know, she takes people's, her filter is uh, that she takes people's feelings into consideration before she speaks. My filter is that we have a job to do a mission to accomplish. We'll be friends later and talk about feelings. <laughs> so that served me very well in Afghanistan and the military. I can cut my emotions out of things very easily 
and oh well if somebody uh feel you know is offended by this well they'll get over it well for her it's that's the most important thing so i have to always remember you know i can say the right thing in the wrong way and it doesn't get communicated properly hey when you're so there's a, yeah. when you're done doing resilience training you could do marriage counseling that's pretty awesome <laughs> yeah yeah i've actually done marriage talks as well in addition uh to the uh resilience training for the military uh, I, I do talks on you know how to stand firm when your marriage is blowing up and oh. there are so many military families that are divorcing in fact, Camp Pendleton alone has an 85% divorce rate uh, among their first time enlisted, which are 18 mm. to 22-year-olds, typically. So it's uh, very necessary, very needed. Yeah, they need you. So before I let you go, would you share with us two different things? Um, the first thing uh, I'm hoping you'll share with us are ways in which we as a community, as people, can be kind to people who are in um in our who are our service members sure how how we can like be kind to service members is that what you're yeah, asking yeah because i feel like sometimes i want to go up and say thank you but i feel like maybe they don't want to be called out you know i don't know i don't know if they want me to pay for their coffee i don't know what that looks like so what what do you think well i always just say help out using what you do naturally if you're not the kind of person that goes up and says thank you if you're not real extroverted like that, then probably don't do that. I know as a prior service member, it, 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 I understand why people do that, but it felt kind of weird to me at first, though I appreciate them. It felt weird because we, we don't see it as anything more than we're just doing our job like you do your job. Mm-hmm. And so to us, it is, it's nothing spectacular. We signed up for this. This is our job. Um, but if I'm in an airport and I see a bunch of one or, you know, a group of military uh, personnel, people in uniform, uh, I, I usually I'll just wave the, the waiter over real quick and I'll tell them, hey, give me their ticket. Mm-hmm. And I usually won't even tell them, um, you know, because I'm not I don't care about that. I just want to buy their lunch or whatever the case, um, you know, and that's you know within my means to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that I can do. Um, you know, I. If they're looking to build a business, I kind of have some experience there. And so a lot of times I'll, you know, I'll have coffee with one of them and uh, help them maybe develop what they're trying to do. I would just say take what you know and use it and exploit it in the service of other people. Cool. Very cool. Okay. And then my last question for you is a favorite act of kindness story that you'd like to share. Oh, oh. Boy. <laughs> I know I'm putting you on the spot. Just didn't know if there was something you had ever done for someone that really made you feel that like, wow, I love this feeling. Or perhaps something that someone's done for you where kindness kind of just showed up at the right moment for you or for your family and, um, you know, kind of stuck with you. You know, I would I would have to say the biggest example is is Dave, the guy who originally mentored me. Mm-hmm. Um, he never charged me a nickel and he always told me that he said, Brian, I'll never charge you a nickel, but would someday when it's within your means to do this for somebody else, what I'm doing for you, you have to promise me you'll do that. And I've done that dozens of times now, mm-hmm. um, you know, since then, which has been about 12 years and he took time to invest what he knew in me and his, ex- his life experiences to help me see opportunities that I never would have known were there. 
And he, he, again, he didn't charge me a nickel for it. And, um, you know, he's the only mentor I've ever had who didn't charge. <laughs> and I gladly paid many others who, uh, you know, I paid them a lot of money. I'll just say that. <laughs> but, but you know, I there's great ROI in that. And so, I've you know, it's, it's come back a hundredfold plus and uh, it's been worth it. But yeah. Great ROI? Person, What's that mean? Great ROI? Return, great return on investment. Oh, and yeah. yeah, one person came into my life and was generous. And uh, again, it, it changed my family tree. It completely altered generationally. It, it changed my family in a new and better direction. All because one person uh, took the time to be kind. Brian, you are doing that for other people. And I so appreciate you. And I appreciate your time talking with us today on the Kindness Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor. That was a conversation with Brian Fleming. Find out more about Brian by visiting briancfleming.com. Thanks for listening to The Kindness Podcast. It's produced by WOUB Public Media and relies heavily on the kindness of engineer Adam Rich and intern Chloe Meston. I'm Nicole Phillips. We hope you'll subscribe to The Kindness Podcast and find us on social media at Kindness Podcast. If you like the show, we'd love it if you'd spread some kindness in the review section.